I love the idea of a morning podcast because I was coming down here and my head was just like blinking with all these different things I wanted to talk to you boys about. And uh, now I can all I can think about is the work I'm going to have to do in post. Um, there were so many, so many questions and things I wanted to ask you boys as just side things. <clears throat> um, I don't want to ruin your grand reveal or anything, but I'm going no. to open these pastries. Get them open. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we got... A blueberry fritter, an apple fritter, a raspberry bear claw, which I want, and an apple bear claw. Did you say berry claw? Oh, berry! Wasn't my new bear claw. <laughs> that guy only eats old dusty bear claws. Acceptable podcast, episode 128, where a bunch of good, good boys and girls will get a bunch of comic books because they just love them. And they love each other. Look at that face of Django. That's a scowly boy. I'm not scowly, you're scowly. I'm scully. Um, uh, where, you know, and uh, we go to our respective quiet places, and after we're done counting and sorting and making love to the comic books, and we just read them and have a blast reading them because of the love for the comic books. A lot of times we go upstairs to record a podcast to our penthouse in the sky, but for the last several months, we've been going down to what we've termed the Pap Cave. The Bat Pap. The Bat Pap. That sounds, there's nothing, like that's, there's no, there's no ambiguity uh, about that Pap reference. I'm Gein Wayne. <laughs> Where's my Pap, Paparang? <laughs> oh God, a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff. Um, <clears throat> But anyway, this is the last week that we're recording in the Pap Cave. So any audio issues that you've had, don't worry. We're going to figure out new ones. Echo, 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 echo. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Uh, so we're excited to sort of close out this saga, and then we're moving to a big, bright penthouse in the sky. Um, yeah. Which makes sense, because as the Pacific Northwest premier entertainment podcast, we should, uh, be, high. We should be high as fuck. <laughs> 420 Blaze It. I feel like I have a yo-yo. Upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs. I feel like a yo-yo because I'm so high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Jeff, and I don't know if I've said this yet, but I am so high. I'm Django. It's 8 a.m. I've never been high at 8 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> or any other, oh, wait. Any other time also. I'm just not sure I've ever been high. <laughs> I haven't either. I'm I'm Roman. I'm I'm never even awake, let alone high at this time. So, <laughs> I love the idea of like Roman being the biggest D hound in this room. And by D hound, I mean drug hound. Oh, drug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this week we're going to be talking about a variety of books uh, that really encapsulate, I think, th- what our show is about. Uh, a lot of perfectly acceptable books this week. So buckle up. We're going to talk about <laughs> Criminal Number Four. Punk Mambo number one, Dick Tracy. He's a good cop. Forever. Number one, Star Trek. What is the Year subtitle? five. Year five. five. It's a five-year mission? Yeah. Oh, that yeah. number keeps coming up. Number one, Ascender number one, Thanos. 
Number one. Number one? Yeah, I think it's just number one. Yeah, what's the legacy number on that? Uh, a bulgin. <coughs> a bulgin. Thanos, a bulgin number one. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. It's just a subtitle. Dial H for Hero, number two. And Dial H for Heroes in Crisis, number eight. The Ocho. Dial C, dial C for Crisis. <laughs> um, Listen, we're going to spoil things, so... Read them or don't. Yeah. We're going to spoil them, but we're not going to get gratuitous about it. We are going to spoil the fuck out of Heroes in Crisis number eight, though, because we got to talk about it. You you can't not. You can't not. Smells bad down here. Tweaked my back yesterday. Still pretty bad right now. That's a bummer. Yeah. That's that's when you're getting real old and you're nearing 30. That's what happens. Like 80% of our audience just rolled their eyes yeah, at you. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, so uh, that was just sort of the order that I had put the books in and trying to decide what they were going to be. But that's going to be our order. Jingo, tell us about Criminal. Well, Bop, Criminal, number six. Let's do it again. Um, so this is – this follows – what is his name? Uh, Ricky Lawless. Ricky. Who is one of the Lawless boys. And uh, – he has been high on meth for three days. It's kind of a theme this uh, today. Yeah, yeah, we're all high, high on meth. meth. Uh, and he he just kind of goes on this little adventure trying to find, uh, like he he's knocked out this dude, and he goes out trying to find a, a person, a friend of his, an acquaintance of his that the dude had wronged in the past, kind of as a gift, like by hey, the dude that the dude that he knocked out. So he knocks not out a guy. And, and not no. Different, different dude. Okay. Um, it's just, just a, I don't know, man. Ed, Ed Brubaker always has a really good kind of voice for crime stories, and and this one is no exception. It plays with a lot of tropes. I wouldn't even necessarily say that this one plays with them. It just throws a bunch of kind of crime tropes at you, and then you get to the end. It's not super remarkable plot-wise or anything, but it's just a, a nice little slice of life in this dirtbag's life. It is slice. so interesting to... Now, listen, this is a visual This is a visual thing, everybody, and we are on an audio medium right now, but it is really awesome to hear Django talking seriously about a book wearing a T-shirt that is covered in burgers. <laughs> it's just got a bunch of <laughs> celestial burgers flying around. Space burgers! Space burgers! <laughs> uh, and then I think Roman... Roman read the comic and the back matter oh, this time. Back matter Statler. Yeah, I, I read back the back matter. I read the back matter first. Do you really? For me, it's first matter, back matter. Do you really do that? No. God. Sometimes that, I like, do. <laughs> I stopped and like had to reassess how I do comics. Do you like books more? I, I, <laughs> I've, on occasion, I've done that. <laughs> read the back matter. But yeah, this issue, it's so good how Brubaker, I can't find it now. There's a panel when he... Ricky goes to his ex-girlfriend's place to enlist her help to contact somebody else because he's pissed off this somebody else and he thinks maybe the ex-girlfriend can, can smooth things out a bit. And when they're in the bar and she's talking to this dude, just the way he shows uh, – Brubaker shows uh, Ricky's immaturity because he, he's been up for three days on meth and he's sitting there in the bar. He's getting resentful even though the, his ex-girlfriend's helping him out. And he t- and he his internet monologue is about this sudden flash of red jealousy he feels just because she's talking his ex is talking to somebody for him on behalf yeah on his behalf yeah and then later on when he, <clears throat> he you'd forgotten this at least I had since last issue the truck he arrived in at her place 
is stolen, which he doesn't mention to her. And as he's walking down the street, he, he like casually over his shoulder is like, oh, yeah, can you wipe down the truck and get rid of it? And she's like, you son of a bitch, because she had no idea this truck was stolen. And, and he, and, truck all night. Yeah, and he's totally like, what? What's the problem? What's her problem? <laughs> and he's just such a dick. That's why I had to stop <laughs> hanging out with meth addicts. I, I know. Ricky I know. Wall. They always do that. driving stolen trucks. Yeah, they dump vehicles on you. and ugh. Yeah. Um, is, is this a direct follow-up to the last issue? Well, weren't two and three a different story? But they had Ricky Lawless in them. Did they? What was yeah. one? Yeah, one I think he's kind of been yet? jumping around okay. issue to issue. There's like... He goes back to Ricky, and then he told. But in between, he told the story of that comic book writer, and so he that was guy. narrating the story of the comic book writers. No, no. it was a different narrator, but yeah. Ricky was a character at the, okay. in, in the second issue. Yeah, minor. Uh, character. I don't yeah. know. It, good comic. Yeah, yeah, and the back matter was great. It's about wild boys on the road. This 1933 William Wellman. Uh, Teenagers and kids forced yeah. into crime. Willie Wellman. And I haven't seen it, but I really want to see this movie now because just this write-up is amazing. <clears throat> Reminds me of Severed. Sever- yeah, yeah, yeah. Without the supernatural element, this is yeah, just yeah. like kids society- on the society- societal ills. Yeah. Brubaker, I'll read it. I'd give this one a uh, give it an eight. Who did the coloring on that one? Is that his uh, Sean Phillips' son, or was that back to Brightweiser? I think it's Sean Phillips' son still yep. doing it. Jacob Phillips. It's, it's amazing. a little more pastel than she does. Yeah, it's amazing how he does coloring so much in tone with what she's done. In tone, but very different. Very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The facial like coloring layers of coloring, bright whiters, it does is way different, but it it is still it looks real similar. Yeah, from from the other side of the table. Yeah, it's it's you know if if you like crime and you're not reading this book. Shame. Hey, Roman, how many Celestial Burgers do you give it? Yeah, there's a lot of crime books out there, but I think this is the best of all of them. Um, I'll give it... I'll give it nine. Hey, can we step around um, Punk Mama really quick and talk about a different crime book that is not the best one coming out? <clears throat> is that Dick Tracy or A Walk Through Hell? Dick Tracy Forever, number one. He's a good cop. That is the first crime book coming out, probably. Well, uh, comic book. Story and art by Michael <laughs> Avon Oming. Colors by Taki Soma. Man, I was hoping that Django was going to read this one because, A, I think he knows more about Dick Trace than anybody. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you guys think that. Because <laughs> he's a good fucking cop. <laughs> he's a good cop. Um, Just a Warren Beatty fan, all right? I don't even know who that is. What? This is another one of those fucking moments. He I'm played sure. Dick Tracy. we got to have that movie weekend. In the, in the movie from when I was a kid? Yeah, with Madonna. With Madonna is and Al Pacino. Tess, I think. Was she Tess yeah. Trueheart? Yeah. Yeah. I saw the movie. I liked it. As a, like a five-year-old. Yeah. I saw it and I liked it as like a 17-year-old. I didn't I didn't mean only a five-year-old <laughs> would like it. I, just, I haven't seen it since I was five, but I liked it then. Pacino was in that? Was he? He was Ratface. Ratface. Oh, huh. I need to see that again. Dustin Hoffman was Mumbles. Really? Who oh. played Mumbles in this? Um, I don't there think was Mumbles, no Mumbles not, isn't in this. in this. What is interesting about this is that it is three short stories that look like they're going to be continued in the next issue. Um, Each one. Did, did? They all had an end, but not. I didn't get a huge sense of resolution from any of them. Oh, okay. I wasn't. Maybe they're all part of just the ongoing Dick Tracy, Tracy saga. And in between, I really like this. In between, they have like crossword puzzles and they're like Will like, Eisner, Eisner inspired crossword yeah, puzzles. Yeah, like some of the old comics did. I like that. 
I didn't do them because I didn't want to mess up my comic book. Right. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, there's, a, there's somebody who wants to do these, but I am not the person who wants to draw my comic book. Yeah. Um, I thought that the art in this was pretty great for the most part. Um, it did remind me of, like, Will Eisner and uh, Darwin Cook. I was going to say Darwin Cook flipping yeah. through it. There's a lot, a lot of that. But I would say that he doesn't have quite the skill that Darwin Cook does. But I also, I think a lot of my complaints with this one are the writing. I'm not sure how often Michael Avon Oming does writing, but he wrote this one as well as did the art. And I had a really hard time tracking this. And this was, to me, um, a really good instance of, like, the type of crime that I just don't care at all about. I'm not the audience for this book. I don't think it was... And the art was well done, but holy shit, I did not want to finish this book. And I did. <laughs> but it... Yeah, so I was hoping some other people were going to like like it and, and balance that out for me. Well, I liked it. Um, there balance. Was, balance. <laughs> Roman Statler is my other half. The balancer. Just call it Gemini. Um because the they balance yeah. the scales. Yeah, everything yeah. Gemini, two scales. Libra. Libra's the scales. Oh. Gemini's Final the twins. Oh, Everybody yeah. get ready. It's coming three or four weeks. <laughs> Shit. Libra. Um, don't tell anybody I don't know or care about astrology. <laughs> That's all right. Libra's an old bit character from the 70s. Yeah, fought the Avengers. So French for the Brazier. No, it's the DC. Oh, that's right. They both have characters named Libra. Okay. The one I'm thinking of was with the, the Zodiac that fought the Avengers. Um, anyway, yeah, I really did like the – especially uh, Tess's expressions in here are very emotive. I like the – That's true. The a, facial expressions are Yeah, are there's really a lot nice. of little bits I like. I like the fact that Dick Tracy, the, a few times when he's surprised by something, his hat literally flies off his head like in old cartoons. <laughs> um, I like the fact that these criminals in the first story – it doesn't mention this um, anywhere in the story, but they've all got these kind of weird Phantom of the Opera half mask or partial mask. And that's because the story set in 1931. These are um, – that's a real thing that happened with survivors of World War One that were disfigured. Mm, they, they'd wear these yeah. these masks. That like just, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, there was no way to treat it or help them. Um, huh. I like the fact that that ties into their origins and why they're doing crime. Um I don't remember the, what the second story. Crash! Oh, Crash Manhattan. I like the fact that, like, when Dick Tracy he gets knocked out, and all of a sudden the next panel he's like floating in space, and it's a 1930s sci-fi background with 30s blast type blasters and things. Then it goes in this black and white sequence. Yeah, you know, yeah, that was another instance where I do think the art was pretty good, but I just <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, and the third story he shows up in his yellow trench coat. And there's that, which is a you classic. Should, everyone, uh, when he said yellow trench coat, Roman uh, looked at Django, who we all know is the big Dick Tracy guy. <laughs> Dick Tracy and bananas, and, both yellow. <laughs> and he was like, he showed up in a yellow coat. Like, well, just because that panel, that panel made me think of Warren Beatty in the movie. Yeah, because it's such a visual, and it's been in the comics, but in the strips, but then in that movie, it's so. You know what's weird is I just realized that while I was reading this, I kept trying to think about the movie and who was playing Warren Beatty or whatever, and I conflated. <laughs> The guy who is the main protagonist in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You thought it was Bob Hoskins? Yeah. <laughs> like shorter and rounder. And I kept being like, man, he seemed badass at the time. But like now I'm thinking about that guy. He's just like not super intimidating. But now. because I was short. Maybe I was just a little boy. <laughs> I don't know. Bob Hoskins, he was quite the ladies man of the 70s. Was he? Was he? No, Warren Beatty. 
<laughs> what do you get? What do you guys on a on a scale of uh, four? I think the cartooning is pretty good, but um, this is a really good instance of a thing that is, I'm just, there are some crime things I can get behind because there's a sort of other thing going on there, a real subtlety or nuance of character or something. And this is, this is very much a throwback. Like if you liked the old pulps or the old Dick Tracy stuff, we're going to sort of do a love letter to that. Yeah. And I, where would you rate it on a scale of like, uh, Liefeld to Darwin Cook. Where, where, where does that fall for you? Um, like a six. Okay. I was hoping for a name. Oh. Um, <laughs> Michael Avon Omi. I'm Michael Avon Omi. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, he's, he is good, and he's doing he's doing things well, for sure. His facial inter- like stuff is, is, is real good. but And he just he does some cool, like, pretty um, Will Eisner stuff with, like, backgrounds or interesting paneling. But it... Looking panel to panel for me, it looks like he's got the panels down, but the page not. Yeah, the page not, and it's it's a lot of talking heads. Like it's a lot yeah. of dialogue and situations where there's not necessarily super interesting stuff happening in the art. But what do you give it, Ro- uh, Roman Beatty? Um, Omin, I'll get I'll give it an eight. Nice. I, mean, I had a lot of I had a lot of fun with it. Whenever I hear. The, Flat top, right? Yep. Flat whenever, top is a guy. I like. Whenever I hear flat top, I, I I hear it in Edward G. Robinson voice, you know. Dude, we have got to put a moratorium <laughs> on references from actors to like that era. That's the same actor. It's he just he says Edward G. Robinson over and over and over. I don't get this joke. I I don't think it's a joke. I think it's the only actor he knows from the fifties. <laughs> okay, so it does happen a well, lot. Well, there's Bogart too, but I can't do Bogart. I don't give a damn. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, yeah, getting close, yeah. Um, yeah, this was a lot of fun for Frankly, me. Frankly, Romy, but... <laughs> I don't give a damn. <laughs> um, the nostalgia factor, I mean, it's just a lot of fun. The cover's fun. I mean, I... cover is awesome. But yeah, it's not It's not subtle crime. It's not uh, realistic crime. It's it's. He's one of the inspirations for Batman. It's a little misogyny in there too. Not like an offensive way, but no, just sort of oh. like the dame <laughs> and the girlfriend and it's always date night and God and now like like it's just this sort of... I mean, it's set in the 30s. I right? know. I, yeah, and I get that. But like, probably I, pretty progressive. For it's probably pretty progressive for that, but I mean if, yeah, I think if we're gonna do a thing... I don't know. I, I As I was reading it, I was trying to think about like Darwin Cook and Parker and the and how that is different to this. And mm-hmm. Parker is like a bad guy. Yeah. But he's presented as a bad guy. And this guy is presented as a good guy. So those bad things come to the surface more as mm. as failures, whereas the bad dude is just being a bad guy. And, and like, why do I like Parker more than them? What's going on with the cartooning there that makes it feel that much more advanced? So the whole time I was reading it, I was doing a sort of side-by-side comparison of this other book that I'm reading that it feels like a really... really... I'm sorry, Dick. He was comparing you to... Darwin Cook's Parker. You're a good cop, but not a great comic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know that he's a good cop thing. I've just heard Django say it so many times. You know what? I'll I'll send you the YouTube link and Thank you can put you. it at the end of the uh, end of the podcast. I'd rather have the charming music, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Punk Mambo number one. I didn't even realize this was Colin Bunn. Dude, I got to the end and book. I thought, of course it was Colin Bunn. Yeah, of course it was Colin Bunn, but I, I'm literally realizing that now with art by Adam Gorham. Gorans? Gorham. Gorhams? Gorans. That word's come up a lot this morning. Yeah. In the pre-recording yeah. moments. Um, 
Well, so this follows a British punk voodoo priestess through a little adventure outside of New Orleans and into New Orleans and then into Haiti. Um, she has a not not really a familiar. I guess she's got a a loa or a voodoo god um, that normally a voodoo god would possess a person, but she's figured out how to possess the voodoo god. So she uses it. Um, its name is uh, Izan or I A Y E. She uses it to kind of back her up, and in the very first fight, somebody steals it from her. Um, then she goes off to find her god. That panel where it gets stolen <clears throat> was pretty confusing. Yeah, is there just a sack going over it? It's just arms and what looks like maybe a blue leg. Like, yeah, I was like, what is going on? I I read that. A lot to try to figure it out. I had to use context clues from previous panels. You to had to out summon your burger vision. Burger, burger vision. <laughs> um, and it turned out that I think the guy's name was Bagman. Oh, okay. who stole it? So, so just, like, if we'd known that before, that would have been real obvious. Yeah. Oh, he's putting her in a bag. <clears throat> well, you know um, what screwed it up for me? I think that, and again, and this is something the editor missed. As as the bag's being lowered over the loa. Um, you see this wah, which I thought was Punk Mambo saying that because we, ha- we haven't heard the Loa speak, and all of a sudden it's speaking yeah. just as it's trapped. Yeah. Yeah, that's a confusing thing. And that's just another instance of just panel-to-panel storytelling. Mm-hmm. There's, I think that you can look at a script and try and convey what a panel says, or you can also be thinking about, is this panel just representative of one scene and a moving thing? Like, how do yeah. I... And, and that, to me, kind of goes back to a conversation we were having before... We're recording this, um, but yeah, which we'll I think probably have again. We'll have again for but, the Infinity Content for, podcast. Yeah, the Infinity Content uh, <clears throat> tie-in that we're doing. But yeah, just um, artists—you can draw a pretty picture, but how well you convey an overall story using static images is a very different skill. This comic kind of felt to me like punk rock John Constantine. And yeah, I'm going to say Constantine because that's how I said it the whole time I was reading it. Hey, guess what? I still don't know what's right. Constantine. Okay. It's canon. But you know what? Not going to do it. Didn't canon change? It may have. <laughs> it may have. <laughs> um, but she's just like kind of flippant punk rock magician lady. Um, her language didn't really work for me. It felt like Jane Colin Bunn like trying to be. No, it was like Colin Bunn trying to be British. And the decision to make the her god named I... Yeah. A-Y-E, which is something that mm-hmm. a British person would say all the time, yeah. tripped me up more than once. Yeah, me too. There's a few times where I thought she was just using a Britishism and yeah. not a name. Just talking <laughs> about her friend. But like having Marie Laveau as a character is pretty cool. Who is that? Um, she's uh, like the voodoo priestess. Okay. Well, I, w- I was reading this and I, I'm sure Roman was thinking the exact same thing because Django is is – the Cajun New Orleans deity incarnate. And I just thought... No, I'm in a burger shirt. Oh, yeah, burger vision. <laughs> Welcome to episode 128, presenting you in burger vision. Um, but, uh, yeah, I. how did you feel about the New Orleans representation? I guess it kind of makes sense because Bone Parish, he writes, and that's in burger vision in... and New, or- New Orleans there, right? Is he in New Orleans? I'm not sure, but did it feel... 
I like I like the scene where she is talking about New Orleans and talking about the posers there who use that area now as just an excuse to get drunk and throw up on the streets. It felt like maybe he lives there. Yeah, and, and, and that to me felt like, oh, I didn't really think about New Orleans because I've never been there, but I bet that that's how a lot of locals feel about that. But they also kind of he, he sort of elevates the uh, the crust punks, and I think if he lived there, that's not something that he would probably do because they're kind of a hassle. Are there a lot of punks there? Yeah, just like like super gutter crust punk kind of sitting on the street for tourists to trip over hmm. asking for money living in the neutral grounds. It's you know, What's whatever. The neutral grounds. It's like a median but wider and it used to be where the like the two different groups would meet and uh it would what, be a, ne- a neutral zone. Uh, I think it was the the Cajuns and the Creoles or the, the Cajuns and the French. I don't know. Oh, oh, New Orleans guy! You got to, you got to edit this out. <laughs> Fiction post, Jeff. Who's on my burger cred? <laughs> was this artistic representation of whatever area this is? Is was that accurate? Yeah, that's Jackson Square, um, and that's that's right down in the French Quarter. Yeah, the the New Orleans stuff seemed more authentic than a lot of New Orleans based comics. I did. I like the <clears throat> character designs quite a bit, and yeah, the, yeah. The, the punks are a little bit elevated, but. It is a kind of culture that I like hearing about and learning about when it's not quite to the extreme hopelessness of some of that stuff. Yep. Um, but you know, like SLC punk or like train spotting or something like yep. that. I like I like that lens of punk culture. Some of them. I mean, more. everybody's got a story, right? Yeah. <laughs> Clever. Um, I like the images in <clears throat> here. I, I like the art. I think the storytelling is. Still cutting its teeth a little bit, but I do think that uh, I think that it's a good style. I want to see more stuff from this artist, and I hope they get some more work, and I hope this helps them get through that. I I don't know if I'll read the next issue, but I do. I don't think it's a bad comic by any means. I actually, when I got to the end, I sat there and and considered the nature of cliffhangers and what makes you want to read the next issue, mm-hmm. and I realized that. I don't remember the last Colin Bunn book I've finished. And I never feel like wherever he ends his issue is something that's going to definitely make me want to read the next one. Um, and I, I like I always enjoy reading his comics. I, I don't think I've read a Colin Bunn book that I would say I disliked. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, it, there, there's something about it that doesn't make me want to turn the page that bad and doesn't make me want to read the next issue that bad. And I drop off them. Pretty quick. I agree. Do you do you think that uh, final page cliffhangers what <clears throat> like dictate you wanting to read the next issue? Because they don't for me. Sometimes they do, but I, I guess I guess it's more the final page setup, like how we got there. Am I curious about what happens next at all? And in this one, not not especially. Yeah. Like I have no doubt that she's going to find her her uh, god, and I don't think it's. It's not like I don't really care how, right? Um, so, but but at the same time, like my first thought was to give this a seven. Mm-hmm. So, like you know, it's it's a, it's a solid comic. It just I I don't need to read the next one. Whereas with something like uh, God Shaper, I couldn't wait to read the next one, and it's kind of you know got a similar vibe to it as far as like gods and people and right, right. magic. Um, I would give it like a 5.5 to a 6. I, I did find the main character compelling and the art pretty interesting for the most part. I 
and I think that a lot of that is just me not necessarily being the main target for it, but I think that um, if you're into, like, badass female protagonists, that's what she is. Like, I don't give a fuck, and it's dark magic stuff, which I'm not a huge magic fan, but, um, yeah, so 5.56. I think that it's got legs for other people, though. Yeah, I think I would give it a, a six. Um, it's all pretty predictable, and I had the same problems with it Django mentioned. Um, I might read the next issue. I mean, I like I like the covers. I mean, I, I think. <laughs> so that's what dictates Roman. Think, <laughs> Dan Barrington. Like. Thank you, Dan Barrington. Well, well, yeah. I mean, the cliffhanger was very predictable. You know, hits all the beats. And I'm not sure yet how I feel about the main character because I can't tell yet if she's just a knockoff of like you know of Warren Beatty of Constantine and Warren Beatty and Tank Girl, or if there's actually more to her. Because so far, that's how I feel about her. It's like, oh, I know okay. her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a little derivative. Yeah. Um, but something that you didn't find derivative this week, Star Trek Year 5, number one. Number one. By Jackson by. Lansing and Colin Kelly with art by Stephen Thompson. I read this because Roman was real pumped about it. Yeah. I don't really know much about Star Trek at all. Well, this is um, a new series set during the original crew's um, their final year, their you know, year five of their five-year mission. Um and it this just captures everybody's mannerisms or personalities, the quirks, the the tropes of that particular show, so well. I mean, reading this, I heard their voices. Um, I thought, wow, this is like a really good episode of the original series. You know, it's it's the art is good. Um, it did it did feel a lot like the original series to me, which I haven't seen a ton of, but the. As I was reading it, I was sort of thinking about how archetypal a lot of those characters are, um, like Spock and Bones and Captain Kirk, and especially with like Captain Kirk's penchant for referencing literature or famous stories of history. Like he does that a yeah. couple times here in ways that don't feel forced. But um, those are aspects that, as I was reading it, I was like, "Oh, I have seen Kirk do this in original things." Hmm. But I almost am more familiar with, like, comic book and current stories like movies and TVs that reference that stuff than I am with that original stuff. So it was interesting for me to be like, oh, right, okay, this is seemingly very in step with the original characterizations of these folks. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that makes, like, Wrath of Khan the best Star Trek movie still is one of the best is the fact that he throws in those... Shakespearean references and Moby Dick references, mm -hmm. just like, you know. And there's a little reference to Wrath of Khan in here with that, like, the statement about the thing that's impossible and then, but there's always a way out or something. I forget where it was, but there was, there was a, there was a little reference to the yeah. Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, I remember there was something like that. Yeah, they're in the dialogue. And Kirk and this is dealing with the fact that, you know, they're all aware this is our final year. You don't know where in that year they are, if it's just like a few months left or what of their mission. And Kirk's, he doesn't come out and say it this way, but he's depressed about that because he's like, geez, I'm, you know, what's next? I'm going to be stuck stuck to a desk. And at one point, spoilers, he missed a bones. He just got the notice that he's being promoted to Admiral. And we see later on in the original crew movies that, you know, he gets bored being in, in an office and not running a captaining a spaceship. He gets fat in, and ends up yeah. working for Expedia or something. Is <laughs> yeah. that in two or three? I think it's in one. The oh. very first Star Trek movie. Huh. Star Trek the movie. Huh. Um, and, and, and this, I mean, it puts him in some classic uh, 
Trek situations uh, where the Tholians are going to show up from the classic Tholian web episode. Um, and we get to see more. I think we're going to see more about them, their biology and everything, which is cool. I the, mean, the aliens that they encounter. Yeah, yeah, these crystalline alien things. Yeah, the, the reveal is that is, is sort of Kirk keeps – this is told as a flashback for the end that it would be – very beginning, he's being held at gunpoint by somebody in the shadows, and he's talking about how this whole, like, everything's about to get totally fucked up, and uh, he invites this child that they save of this alien race to their ship, and that is apparently what's going to doom all of them. Yeah, which, again, is classic Kirk wanting to do the right thing and ignoring all their, like, protocols about, oh, well, this is alien life. Maybe we shouldn't bring it on board until, like, Bones approves it and blah, blah, blah. But nope, just do it. I really like the line, um... Where in order to take one of those aliens down, like Spock does this huge like Vulcan punch to its chest, and then Kirk uses this special like ray that shatters a bunch of the crystalline intestines of this thing. And Kirk says, "That was a hell of a jab yourself, Spock." Has indeed. Incidentally, I do believe my hand is broken, <laughs> and I I really like that line there. I would say that this suffers from what several things suffered to me this week, which was because I love comic books folks but some weeks they're just fine and this this week was a lot of just fine books to me there wasn't a lot of stuff that i i that like really excited me this week but this had the same thing where i think the art was totally serviceable but the balance of text to interesting imagery that made me want to keep reading was not balanced like it was a lot of text and oftentimes when you have that much text what that means is that you've got a lot of talking heads and not a lot of visual storytelling going on. Um, like the next book we're going to talk about is Ascender. I think that book did a really great job of balancing visual storytelling and not doing all of the storytelling with words. And this one, as well as Punk Mambo and as well as Dick Tracy, I think. He's a good cop. He's a good cop. But he relied a lot on words to get the to tell you what was going on. But maybe that's just a part of what Star Trek needs. Like it would be hard to have a lot of people walking around in spaceships doing this stuff. But. I think that you could have done a lot of that, like Bones, Kirk interaction of several pages talking about his discontent and his fear. That could have been conveyed with body language and facial expressions and, mm. and the strength of their relationship more than just saying all of the things. It's kind of kind of, uh, kind of Django's complaint about Robert Kirkman of like sometimes he tells and doesn't show. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how much of that is is um, trying to, is trying to capture these the actors voices of the characters voices and plus i'm looking at this page here with uh scotty and, and spock in the in the the lift the elevator and thinking about the fact on that set it was they were so low budget they were very boring sets especially like in the elevator um and just the way they broke up the panels and filled up so much text in there with their dialogue yeah it's a real crowded page but that actually page was interesting <clears throat> to me because i was that one particularly, I was like, oh, this is what the other side of the deck is. Like, they're just on the other side of the door that goes to the main bridge, you know, that they're always on in the show. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, it gave me a little bit more of a sense of the actual physical space of this ship. Oh, okay. Which I appreciated a little bit. I, all in all, I think it's pretty good. I give it a seven. Um, I'm not a huge Star Trek guy. I think that if you are, like, I think Chris would really like this. One of the yeah, I, te Chris I, I texted him and said, oh, you got to read this. <laughs> I like the idea of the sort of finality of their mission being conveyed here, although we know yeah. with the movies that everything's going to be fine. But Yeah, because the first movie, I think they said they, they changed it to the ongoing mission. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm looking at this page, I'm just reminded too, and then they, they captured uh, Scotty's almost always being frustrated with the fact that he couldn't get the things he needed for the engines and everything yeah. in a timely manner. The um, way that he kind of, yeah, has Spock subvert. or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's nice to see too because so many Star Trek books just aren't well written. There's that other one going on at the same time as this with all the crews kind of, yeah, crossing over because of Q. And I read the first one of that, and uh, boy, it was it was rough. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear the characters the way I do in this. What do you give it? Uh, I would give this. I'd give this a nine point five. Okay. Wow. Even though it's year five and not even year one. Well, the the <laughs> title is a year one reference. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I already mentioned it a little bit, but I want to talk about Jeff Lemire and Dustin Gwynn's uh, Ascender Number One from Image Comics. <clears throat> What really interested me about this one is that Descender went on for like 40 issues or something yeah. a while. I only read the first couple of them. So I was really curious how well this series stands outside of having read Descender and how well um, I think Dustin's art has evolved. I was curious about that because he would leave a lot of backgrounds blank or there'd be a lot of like white backgrounds and then foreground stuff. And that, that's a thing that really bothers me. Um, so I read this having, at this point, it's been years since I read those original ones and I didn't love them back then. And I thought this was actually pretty good. I'll probably read the second one. I, I am curious, like how much this is informed by the previous series or how much of a time jump there was. Cause I don't know. What I heard is that the previous series leans heavy on sci-fi and uh-huh. this one is leaning heavy on magic instead. So it seems like there's gotta be a pretty good time Span in there. Right. And it sounds like spoilers, I guess, for Descender, but like, yeah, the end of Descender is sort of the fall of science. Okay. And the this little girl is lamenting not really getting to experience robots. And there's a queen that is referred to as mother that is sort of the ruler of the universe. And she, in a kind of like Black Panther way, is talking to the ghosts of the other mothers that have ruled. There's this lineage that they can commune with and get advice from. Um, but the art is really, really nice, and I think the balance to visual storytelling, like Jeff Lemire, is fucking Jeff Lemire. Like he can write characters in a compelling way so effortlessly. I found myself less interested in the stuff about the mother and the empire, and more like one issue. I was really bonded to this young girl protagonist, and then her dad, and what's going on with them, and like that's just like Jeff Lemire is. Real good at that. There is one sad Canadian kids walking through the snow, man. Yeah, exactly. In space. There's one particular panel that I was like super impressed with the watercolor Dustin Nguyen uh, lighting. Like there's this sort of top down shot of this stone room that has fire in it, and and the way that he has fire orange, but like the way that that's reflected in most places is sort of a yellow and green. Uh, It's just like. A very uh, a lot of ambiance in that shot. Really well constructed backgrounds, which I think is just a testament to Dustin Gwynn having been doing this for years now. Like having a monthly book come out that he's doing all the art for. I think he's found shortcuts that he can take that allow him to maximize a, a lot of storytelling in here. But yeah, San Canadian kids walking through the snow in space is not a terrible pitch for this book. But it's got some implications to a larger world. And, yeah, I don't think, like, 
I'm not a huge fantasy guy, and I love sci-fi, but there's been so much sci-fi at this point that it's got to be interesting sci-fi. Descender didn't scratch an itch in a really interesting way for me. And this one is maybe almost pretty fantasy, but not. it walks an interesting line where it's not too much of any of the stuff that I don't like. Um, so, yeah, I would recommend it. If you are interested in it at all and are maybe worried about having not read Descender, I did it, and I liked it. So I think that it's it's worth checking out, and the art is real, real pretty. And the I don't think anyone quite writes characters like Jeff Lemire. Like he he's real good. He's real good. He finds a way to make you care very quickly in a pretty deep way. So I would give this one a seven point five. I'll add it to my list. Did I'll you read Descender? No, I read the beginning of it, but I w- I wanted to kind of read it all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked. I think I read the first. Probably about the first trade and a half worth of issues. Okay. Um, and I liked, I liked what I was reading and where I was going, but, I, you know, at some point you just got to read something in, in one sitting. Right. And That's I, what Deadly Class has become for me. I love yeah. it, but, like, I just have to read, like, a paperback and a half in one sitting. Yeah, and I, I'm, like, I read Sweet Tooth all in a weekend or something, and, and I loved that format for that story. And I think that Descender looks like it's a similar thing for me. And all the covers, I don't think, did it a huge amount of service because they're all, in, to me, they were all really sort of generic sci-fi, just like, here's a picture of an alien. Here's a picture of an alien next to a robot. They did here's that. a robot. Here's yeah. a different robot. They did that thing where they have, like, each trade paperback has a theme on the covers, and they're all very samey, too. Yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah. So, but good showing, Jeff. Roman. Mm. Take Ooh. Me home. Thanos number one, another Thanos number one. This one by Teeny Howard and Ariel Olivetti and Antonio Fabella. It's a bulgin. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Um, I'm a bulgin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this series is kind of a flashback series about the origin of the Thanos Gamora relationship, him um, taking her and raising her as his little assassin child. Uh, which at first I I I didn't really care because I we've kind of seen that before. And Jeff Lemire didn't write it. <laughs> yeah, and Jeff Lemire didn't. <laughs> or Donny Cates. Uh, or Donny Cates. Um, but I, I I actually enjoyed this story. It starts off on Thanos's old ship, and we get to see his crew people, and and that we haven't really seen before. The story of the crew people and their their views of Thanos, you know serving him and their perspective on what that's like and how horrible it is and also mixed with the monotony of sitting around playing cards with your crewmates while you're waiting for the next big battle or whatever that the boss throws you into. So that was that was original. And what's her name from who ends up being one of the yeah, ends up being one of the Black Order. Mm -hmm. She at this point she is just one of the crew people. Um so this first issue they go to the the planet and destroy the people, Gamora's people, and we find out, you know, how she ended up with Thanos. And there's a great two-page spread, the best pages, I thought, in the issue, where we see this action shot of Thanos just tearing waste through these people until he's confronted by the Magus, who's Adam Warlock's evil self in back in the 70s stories that introduced Thanos. Um, That was a nice nice little nostalgic thing. And the art is really cool. I'm going to read the next one. So this is a new series. It's a new series telling untold tale, uh, uh, the untold aspects of an old story. 
Hmm. I know we've. I know this isn't really necessary, and I think everybody's probably on board. But I really wish Marvel would subtitle these new series. Yeah. Like we don't need another Thanos fucking number one. Yeah, I do wish they'd. Yeah. Just make this Thanos, the missing years, or like make yeah. it anything. Yeah. Thanos. Gam- yeah, Gamora. Year Thanos one. is a butthole. <laughs> Thanos a Bulgin, number one, <laughs> like whatever it is, just give us a, give us a subtitle so that we can refer to it in a in a way that makes sense instead of Thanos parentheses 2019. Yeah, Marvel yeah. more than anybody I think suffers from that. DC will add a lot of subtitles, but I mean, you know, even Avengers No Road Home has legacy numbering for Avengers stuff. And their, <laughs> yeah. Their series is are real confusing hodgepodge. And at least this best. first issue, I feel like they called it Thanos just to capitalize on his bigger name because of the movies. Because it's really, from what I read so far, this issue in the description, it's really Gamora, like, year one or whatever. So call it Thanos Gamora year one. Yeah, yeah. Fuckos. How did you – so first of all, on the – like in the last four years, they've gotten way better at at least getting a book out on the right week to capital. If it's a movie related <laughs> yeah. thing, you know, like even like two years ago, it was like, all right, this book is three weeks behind. You know, yeah. I, I guess Captain Marvel came out like two months beforehand, but maybe that was an intentional choice. But yeah, they gave us time to have a few issues on yeah, hand too. Yeah, but after the fact is a real shame. Did, did, you, Thanos. You hear written a lot of different ways. How did you like this portrayal of him? It was it was in keeping. He's he's uh, definitely arrogant and above everyone else, and scary and and devoted to death. Um, it was it was it sounded like Thanos okay. had his characterization well. Um, I'd say give it a shot if you like. If you're interested the in art? Thanos and Gamora, yeah, the art. The it's interesting in that double page spread that you showed of like, I love that. Um, it's a double page spread of Thanos jumping down, swinging a sword, but it's got like five lighter grade images of him in the back, you know, up to his present moment. Anyway, I just like when they convey motion in that sort of stop, yeah. stop motion way that shows several different scenes leading up to it, and it's, I think it's a pretty powerful shot. Who's he about to swing at there? Uh, the Magus. Okay. Who in the Jim Starlin stories of the seventies? That was Adam Warlock's evil, slightly future self who okay, ended up. I thought it was Adam Warlock, but yeah, and it's his evil self that starts this whole church of something that is taking over the universe, and they end up confronting Thanos because he's around at the same time. And... Do you think it's all right into that church that's taking over everything? An old man Quill. Oh, I'm trying to remember what's that has like it a may be the same. Symbol, but... Yeah, okay, it's the same church. Is it? Yeah, okay, they're well, back. That... They're back in Old Man Quill. <laughs> oh, okay. So in the future, this, <laughs> this art is awesome. It's Ariel Olivetti, and it's way different than what I usually expect from Ariel Olivetti. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah, the art in this was it was, and the storytelling it it was much better than I expected. Tini Howard, Ariel Olivetti, and oh, Antonio Fabella colored it. Antonio, that th- that has. That's a really nice mix of colors and art in there. And usually I expect Ariel Olivetti to look kind of like digital digital oil paints. Yeah, you know, kind, kind of slick. They and... did a book. You were like, this is not normal Ariel Olivetti. Maybe maybe it's new normal. The new normal. Yeah, his stuff has, has more depth to it somehow. It's it's. I would I would read that comic. Also, looking at the last two pages, I would definitely read that comic. I like I like the way that ended. What do you give it? 
I'll give it a 7.5. Can I talk about a walk through hell just real quick? Please. It's number nine, Garth Ennis, Goran Suduzuka. This puts everything that we've read about the horror stuff into question right out of the gate. So remember this this book has been basically following two detectives through kind of a Cthulian nightmare warehouse. And are we still in the warehouse? Well, they've been in the warehouse. Um and we've been getting flashbacks to them trying to catch a child molester murderer who maybe also arranged other people to do the like gross things to to people. Mm-hmm. Um but this one their boss wakes up in kind of the same place, like the horror place, and she's covered in blood. Turns out it's corn syrup. She finds some of the monsters, and they're just like pillows stitched together. And she makes a a mention of how she thinks that, because in the previous issue, I think she had kind of a Cthulian experience too, and she mentions to one one of the other detectives that she found like a bag of props, and uh, she thinks that uh, she got gassed with the same stuff that the other two did, and they can't find the other two cops. So it seems like maybe that crazy Cthulhu nightmare that they were living has been set up just by a fucked up person. Which That's really cool. Nine issues in? Yeah. Well done, Garth Ennis. Yeah. You, this is like... This is the long game for a, a book that probably isn't getting a whole lot of readers. And, like, ambitious because that's Aftershock Press, which isn't a hugely ordered company. So to be oh. playing a long game with a story that, like, could be on the verge of canceling a book at any given time yeah. is is ambitious. Yeah, I, I really, really liked it. And um, this this is one of my favorite horror comics right now by far. Yeah, and, I, and it and it's detective. I only read the first like three or four. I think we just like sold out of an issue or something. But yeah, it's I'm I'm excited for like a nice hardcover collection or something. This is this is going to be a worthy addition to like uh, you know from hell and um, infidel and yeah and some other good horror good, books. Just good ooky stuff. Yeah, and and even like some of the Brubaker stuff, you know, because it's got it's got a lot of that FBI crime. What would you give it? This issue? I'd give this issue a nine and a half. I, I'm not 100% clear on everything that happened in it, but it is. It's it got me in a similar way that that issue of The Boys that kept me reading comics got me. Where it's Did, just like, yeah. you, you can still surprise me. Do you think that it is going to be non-Cthulhu or is it going to be both? I really don't know. I think it's going to be both. I really don't know. I'd be happy with it either way. This... this uh, bad guy that they've that they're you know they've they've chased down in the flashbacks is um i i don't think that he's i think he's just person evil mm-hmm. um and they were kind of setting it up so that everybody thought that maybe he was possessed by a cthulhu um sort of evil but it at this point it feels more like if you mixed the absurdity of saw with kind of the the red herrings of True Detective, hmm. if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. It does. Um, so we're near near the end here, everybody, but I do want to talk very quickly about Dial H for Hero number two by Sam Humphreys with art by Joe Canones. I liked this book a lot, and 
I don't know what it says that the last couple of weeks I've just really been enjoying kind of more fun books, but it's been a thing. This one has that sort of absurdity that the first one did. They, this kid and this boy have escaped in a mail truck. The person who's on the the operator on the other side of the dial H, you know, phone is trying to get a hold of him, and he's running away from that. What we learn is everybody who's got a four that shows up on their head when he dialed it is all are all people who have dialed the phone before, which seemed like a really interesting nod to different, like, Silver Age continuity, like Alfred having one on there. I was like, well, when did he dial the phone? But uh, there's a group of people that are sort of obsessed with trying to get the phone back that are chasing after this phone, and the kind of crazy guy gets the phone at one point and dials it, and the whole thing is transported into Dragon Ball art. Like, <laughs> in the first one, it was all 90s art. When they dial the phone, this is, like, straight-up Dragon Ball. I love that they give a hero's origin to it. We get several pages of, like, great Dragon Ball references, and then somebody else picks up the phone, and it's, like, a black-and-white manga <laughs> mech thing, whereas Dragon Ball has really basic colors, like four-tone. Um, now we've got this, like, sort of apple seed, ghost in the shell versus Dragon Ball thing that happens for several pages, and that's just, like really, really up my alley. I like that they had the two characters fight and they're each drawn in their own style. Right. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's it's really interesting and I guess my favorite thing sort of play with ideas that have already been established and aren't necessarily trying to do the same ideas that have been established. So this yeah. is very like meta playing with genre as a single genre and I really like that. Roman, what did you think of it? I really liked it too. I mean, like, like you said, it's so much fun that they're not just simply doing the same. And Dial H was always creative, but it, usually when they bring it back, it's the same thing. One person has H dial, dials it, becomes a superhero, but it's the surroundings and everything are exactly the same. They've never really done this where they got the whole, each, each uh, character genre or whatever is represented in their environment and who they're fighting. And the thing with the previous users all showing up, that it's all very oh, creative, very fun. Yeah, and I'm not actually I've never really loved Sam Humphrey's book, but this is the most yeah. I've liked two issues of his ever. Yeah, um, and it's a surprise. I turned the page and when he became Joku the Zonkey King or whatever, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> yeah, uh, it speaks to Joe Kanone's skill as an artist, we will so effectively change his style as well. Really yeah. impressive. Well, uh, you yeah. know, Sam Humphreys may just be either writing a character that we care more about or developing um, kind of his his style. Yeah, it, it really yeah. is a departure in style to me. I've never had a, such like a genre, a game of genre before. I'm not sure how long that'll be kept up. But. This 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 book actually has a really good example. And I read this last night, right oh, around okay, the same nice. time I read the other, the Punk Mambo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this has a really good example of a cliffhanger that made me want to read the next issue. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Um, and it was just like this this guy, the Mr. Thunderbolt, has been telling the people who had the number four show up on their heads to say the word, and we never got to see the word. And then at the very end, this lady cop says, I promise, Mr. Thunderbolt, Saka McGee. Which <laughs> I was like, like, I have to know what Saka McGee means. So I had to also, and I did a Google search, and it's like a reference to a character who used to say Saka McGee. Yeah. Yeah. So much more interesting than yeah. like the pump mon punk what? mambo. Which was just her showing up in a church. Yeah, you know? yeah when you said the final word, I was like, because I think, and I didn't look it up, but I think that the, uh, I think that's the word that Robbie Baldwin, who was the very first H dial dialer. Yeah, used. maybe I forget what even I googled and found yeah. out, but it's yeah. nice when a book I think makes that's me. what he would say. Was that William H Macy? 
Hmm? It was Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty. That's right. Um, I give it a nine. I give it a seven. I will also give it a nine. A-O-A-O. I don't like manga art. Yeah. Either of them. I, I respect what they did, but they lost me there for a bit. Yeah. Um, you guys want to do a buckshot real quick for last week's books. Yeah. If you tell me what last week's books were, I couldn't quite remember. That was a whole week ago. I know yeah, these I know, I know these really two for sure were last up. week. Was this? <laughs> well, I'm ready. Uh, I read I'm, a lot of comics last week. Yeah, I read a lot. I, I just don't remember which ones they remember. were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, know. I remember reading a lot, but uh, Jingle's got a good stack. Are, of, uh, are we doing true buckshot time? Yep. Okay. Minute and a half. Um, so let me get the clock all set up. I, so while you do that, I'm going to say that I was in New Orleans. I bought all of my comics at a shop and uh, walked out of there with, like, probably the biggest stack of comics I've had in a couple months and then sat in the sun and read them until I'd read all of the fun, happy comics I could and then just kind of had to beat my way through a bunch of bummer, downer <laughs> comics for the rest of the week. And I loved every one of those bummer comics, but it was like, okay, this is going to be heavy. i got to read it. Um, so one of the bummer ones that I read oh, was, uh, oh, that was for you. Well, yeah, but Dang you're it. good. Go. Uh, little bird. Number two was beautiful, scary, gross, violent, uh, heartbreaking. I, I, I loved it. Everybody should be reading that. And I think you should read it as it comes out. Cause a, they're not going to collect it anytime soon. And B, I think that the, the way that they're telling the story is enhanced by having a little bit of breathing room. Um, Gideon Falls, just another beautiful Jeff Lemire horror story with uh, Andrea Sorrentino drawing it. I really enjoyed um, Middle West and Murder Falcon, which I always kind of lump those two together, and I don't really know why. They're, yeah, they're both in the M's. They're, they've both been coming out for about the same amount of time. Murder Falcon could have been a contender for my favorite comic last week. Just rock and fucking roll. And Middle West, just really good character work from Scotty Young, which I've always just blown him off as not a creator I care that much about, but uh, really good. Daredevil was probably my very favorite comic last week. Um, It was just a conversation with Daredevil and Punisher and the, the end cliffhanger, like the last page reveal, had me like audibly excited on the bayou. Also, Assassination Nation was great. And Excited Pearl number on eight. The bayou. Pearl number eight. I want to keep reading Pearl. And I've been touch and go this whole time. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Scores. Uh, oh, Jesus. Um, Little Bird, 10. Gideon Falls, 9. Murder Falcon, 9. Middle West, 8. Daredevil, 9.5. Pearl, Seven and a half, and uh, assassination, or sorry, assassin nation. Uh, just a lot of fun. I'm gonna give that a seven. A lot of good comics. Jeff, go. Uh, Meet the Skrills, number three by Robbie Thompson and Nico Hendrickson. I've talked about the first two issues of this series. It really is one of my absolute favorite books coming out right now that no one is reading. I think like we sell like two copies of it a week. I think the art is incredibly good and incredibly unique really good storytelling. I love following it. It's 15 degrees off of really any other Marvel book coming out right now. And this one 
had a lot to do with the sort of furthering of their mission as a family, but touched a lot on the third daughter that they had that died and how they died and how that's affected them. And they're just doing an awesome job of humanizing or <clears throat> just making scrolls relatable in a way that I think does a good job of dissolving a lot of boundaries that people put up. Really good book. I think people should check it out. Uh, Naomi number four. I really liked Naomi number four. Uh, I've liked that whole series, but I like this one very, very much. It dealt with like who Naomi is, whose daughter she is, what role she has with her parents. It filled in a lot of stuff with the the context of why her parents are on Earth with this Thanagarian, and I forget the name of the planet that the Stranges are from, but Adam Strange. Um, but it's really, really good. And uh, Batman 69, I think, was a perfect end to the Nightmare story. It did really, really good stuff. And it's basically the story of just Batman learning to move on from Catwoman. And I think that that was really elegantly done. You get uh, scores? I do, yeah. Meet the Skrills, number three, I'll give a 9. Naomi, number 4, I'll give an 8.5. And Batman 69, I'll give an 8.5. Those are probably my three favorite books that I read last week. And I really liked the Thomas Wayne Bane stuff that happened in the, that Batman issue. I yeah. read all three of those also and yeah. liked every one of them. Yeah. It was, it was a good week of comics. Last, last week was a really good week of comics, which makes this week not bad, but a little tricky. Uh, yeah. Not quite as strong by comparison. Was this last week? That was last week. Okay. Feel free to open it up to you. I feel, like, right, I, Roman, I feel you like we should mention that we're, uh, the reason we're doing last week's buckshots for last week is because we didn't have a podcast last week. Right. Yes. Sorry. If you, this is your first episode, we didn't have a podcast last week, so we're doing buckshots from last week. Go. Um, I'll do Spider-Man Life Story number two, the 70s. This was another great solid issue of this series. Um, a lot of good nostalgia, and it's a, and it's it's but it's also a kind of an alternate take on spider-man through the years and it has all the all the characters professor warren is back i mean it's a fun series it's a dark series this issue in particularly a lot of bad stuff happens to parker and it's just it's very moving um daredevil number four yeah i also really enjoyed this issue daredevil faces he's kind of had the best daredevil stories are when he's struggling with moral choices and he accidentally killed somebody earlier in the series, and he's trying to deal with that. The Punisher is thinking that Daredevil switched sides to the Punisher's way to doing things, and Matt's really disturbed by that because he's worried that maybe I have, and I got to come back from this. I got to prove I'm not like the Punisher. And the final page is like, uh, boy, buddy, I don't know. Maybe you are. Um, Avengers No Road Home number 10. Was that last week? This, this, this was a great issue. Uh, it's kind of summation of this series. It might be the final issue. It, I don't remember. It is the end, yeah. It is the end. And it does something interesting with Conan that affects Marvel Universe going on from here, and I'm not sure quite how it's going to do that. But Savage that Avengers is how. Yeah, Savage Avengers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Little Bird number two also. Loved it. Fantastic art. Oh, it was so good. Um, what were your scores on those? Uh, Little Bird number two, um, at least an eight and a half for the art. I'm not, I couldn't tell you now what's going on with the story exactly, but the art's amazing. Daredevil, I'll give a nine. Um, Avengers No Road Home, that last issue, I'll give that a solid 7.5. Be a little higher maybe if the art, the, the art, I'm not thrilled with the art. There are a couple pages in this Avengers No Road Home that are, that just kind of look like, 
instead of drawing it at double size, they drew it at comic book size. Like, and there was another comic that came out this week where I was reading it and I was like, suddenly the art changed and it looked like they had to rush. And so instead of drawing big, they drew thumbnails and blew them up. Hmm. Um, but I, I can't imagine that that's actually what's happening with hmm. uh, with these creators. But it, it just... I wish I could remember what the other thing was this week because it, it jumped out at me as, well, this is not what I would like to see in uh, in a professional comic. Oh, it was, uh, I think it was Kick-Ass. Well, let's move on to Heroes in Crisis real quick since we got to get out of here to open up the store real soon. Real soon. Um, recording this real early in the morning because... Uh, uh, we moved a whole basement upstairs, Django, yeah. and some crew did yesterday while we were working, and uh, schedules. And QueerCon. And QueerCon. All sorts of different stuff happened. But uh, Heroes in Crisis number eight by Tom King and Mitch Garrids. This is what I was most excited about this week. Um, and kind of that discussion about the Cullen Bunn and final page reveals and everything. That Just that idea of... What I like more than anything, more than the ending of a thing, is how much I enjoyed the journey. So even on a singular issue format, um, for me, it's it's very like, was I just interested during it? I don't necessarily care about the single page or the final page reveal. This mini series, we get a lot of information about what's going on here. And Django and I went on a drive a couple of days ago just to sort of have a cup of coffee and drive through the <laughs> the the highlands together. But uh, he clarified some stuff that I hadn't. Like it was a little confusing for me that made me dig it even more uh, than my first time through. I like the Mitch Garrett's art a lot. What did you guys think of all this? Uh, I didn't notice until just now, but flipping through, if they show somebody's hair, it's red in in the first three pages. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> they they show they show Wally, they show Ray or Roy, right? Roy. What about Nark? They show this guy. Eh, Narc is whatever. Well, what about Kid Devil? This with the white hair. Nah, it doesn't count. <laughs> they show. They show. What about all the dark hair on that, that page you've got? No, you guys aren't. You yeah, they show yeah. what's his name, Gun Arm, or whatever his name is. A lot of red hair in this issue. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> also, yeah. a lot of non-red hair. <laughs> <laughs> I I really dug this one. It was. It it surprised me. I didn't suspect this. I mean, we don't have to dance around it, right? Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoilers. Wally West killed everybody. Yeah. Yeah. According to this issue. Yeah, and framed, you know, framed both Harley and Booster. And killed himself. Yeah. And all very cleverly. More cleverly, I didn't know Wally could, was this clever. And this is like Batman level cleverness. <laughs> well, he's he's watched Batman solve crimes, right? Batman yeah, and, and Barry. Yeah, and Barry. Yeah. And plus he has super speed, so... Anything he didn't know how to do, I mean, he can super speed. Yeah, I walked away with it. Learn how of, to do it. Sort of like, man, is Wally capable of that? And then Django, while we were driving, was like, yeah, like, you know, if you're driving and you hit a kid on accident and kill a kid, like, whether you do the right thing or not, you're probably going to instinctually have that knee-jerk response of, like, I need to run. Yeah. And yeah. that's, like, Wally lost control of the speed force, killed all these people, and his first response is to go into the future, kill himself to take him back in time to look at, like, he died as well. And He's in crisis mode. He's in crisis yeah. mode. He's in PTSD mode. And, and, like, you know, we all have done shit that probably wouldn't have, we wouldn't do the same way again because shame and fear are very mm. powerful clouding mechanisms. But the pacing on all of it, for the unveiling of the mystery was a little bit weird. I think that we walked away from the last issue for me 
pretty sure that Wally had done it and not knowing exactly how. Pretty but sure that Wally had done it, but the time his, his body was the wrong age. Right. But, like, and it showed both of the Wallys together, so we knew there was a time travel thing, and I, I guess I would have liked all of that to hit me in this issue, mm-hmm. because dividing between seven and eight was like, okay, so Wally did it, but how? And then learning how, like, it's a big pill to swallow, a big pill to swallow with Wally here. <laughs> um, and... You know, I think it would have worked better trying to shove the giant vitamin C tablet down my throat. Um, horse pills. Get that horse pill mm. down my throat. But. Yeah, maybe that would have. Because the last issue, I just simply didn't believe it. Yeah. That Wally had done it. I, I thought that he had been convinced that he had done it by Psycho Pirate or something. Sure. Okay, <laughs> a couple things. On this page where he's talking to himself and getting ready to take him, like, kill himself in the future kill his future self and bring him back to be a, um, a body. Yeah. What's that shadow that's growing bigger over them? Good question. I was wondering, too, is something about to fall on them? Is that, like, the speed force, like, building up? Or what is that? Also, what did Harley and Booster see? They, they s- saw each other doing the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who's to say that Wally isn't in a simulation. Possible. Like, we have one issue left to see what's going on, so I mean, maybe he's in a simulation. He would have to, A, be in a simulation, and B, also have... Um, we would have to also solve the actual crime, because this has crossed over into the main DC universe, mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of a bummer. I like that. I wouldn't like it to not be crossed over in the main DC universe or not have a lot of ramifications. I guess that just means that this definitely, these things happened. For sure. Even if we find out that Wally didn't do it. Right. Like, the the whole thing is not a simulation. Right. And for me, I never questioned that. But I guess, like, Wally, like, lightning quick moving them into a room so that they're seeing a thing. I was like, okay, can, like, people won't even notice if they've been moved? Like, that was, that's a little bit... They're so fucked up and disoriented because they're already in a simulation. For sure. Right? For sure. But also, then, doesn't the simulation respond to the individual person with what they need to see? So how did Wally get the simulation to see what he wanted them to see? He reprogrammed Yeah, it. he reprogrammed Okay, he did reprogram it. It's been yeah. a week since I read it. So. Which I love the idea of him just like, all right, you, there's no way you could hack into this unless you had all the time in the world. Well, I'm the fastest man alive. Yeah. I got all the time in the world. I can hack into it, and I can reprogram it, and I can rub my dick all over it. Wow. Okay. Um so, so all of that, um, but yeah, I, oh, is that the, is that the shadow of, uh, Blue Beetles? Oh, that occurred to me thing? and it also, it could be, it could be the bug or maybe it could even be one of, um, Rip Hunter's time spheres. Oh yeah. Yeah. Time same, bu- same yeah. kind so of So I shape. do think that we're yeah. still coming out of this mystery. Like I think yeah. there's still some oh, yeah. stuff yet to happen here. But I, I, also pages th- I think, like, the whole creation of his puddler's myth and the, like, I don't know, that that is a little bit too heavy-handed of a red herring to me. Like, to have put that in issues one and two and then have it just be this thing that Wally wrote to throw people off. I love it. it yeah, I like, I love this series, but I... I would have liked it to be a little bit more referential to history or something than just like the puddlers. Oh, I, 
I think that's a great idea and a great concept that hasn't been followed up and didn't get followed up and isn't referential to something else. Mm -hmm. And if it's not real, it seems it's very red herring. And I think a little bit closer to home, a little bit closer to truth, you know, it's, it's a little easy to just throw something way out here and have you look over here. But I think a better magician does something really close to home and then skates that line between it and, and I was hoping that was going to be a little bit more of the case here, like a little bit more to do with the story, and, and that wasn't the case. But I, I, I really liked it. I love, love, love this series. But to me, uh, the journey that we've had from issues like two to six is what I love about this series and, and is what I'll remember about it. And, you know, nothing that really happens in issues eight and nine will color how much I loved that stuff. Do you think that, uh, like, the reason Wally freaked out as he learned he learned that he wasn't alone right like all these other heroes ha- have been in crisis also mm-hmm. and he goes out into the field to be alone and they came out to comfort him and he lashes out just kind of leave me alone kind of right, thing right, right. do you think this came from one of Tom King's kids meltdowns I mean it is it has like a childish meltdown thing but also and he's got kids the right age for that but, like, you know, when I've had anxiety issues, like one big anxiety attack, but also, like, when I feel getting close to that, it's very – it's like when you have a fear or a worry and that triggers another fear or worry. And then all of the sudden there's just this, like, the curtain falls and every other worry is immediately there and there's just this immediate sense of hopelessness or fear because you can't sort of like tick off why these are irrational one at a time. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was that of like everybody is broken, damaged, superheroes aren't worth it. We, we, we're not, you know, the Ubermensch. We're not, we're just like, it's all fucked. Like that overwhelming breaking the dam moment is sort of what an anxiety attack to me is. And and that seems very much like what he experienced. So I, I, I agree that it's also sort of that there's a kind of like, leave me alone thing. But yeah, I guess sure. I guess it's it's like his not not him wanting to be alone is what I'm talking about. But him like when they when they come up and they're like, hey buddy, are you okay? And they touch him, he's like, get off me, you know, like yeah, I, I yeah I think that they basically I think that they've done that whole thing as a metaphorical panic attack of just. Do you think kids are just always having panic attacks? <laughs> I, I just think the kids are you know not used to handling all their emotions effectively, so. Yeah, yeah, and I really loved about this series and this is that, and yeah, there's all these other characters and and they inform it, but it's really Wally's story, and then they got back to how the beginning of Rebirth was Wally's reintroduction mm-hmm. to the overall DC story, and now this dealing with the fact that like his father figure Barry in that first issue of Rebirth. Um, <clears throat> I can never forget you. Can, yeah, tells him all that. I can never forget you. And from then on, Wally becomes a symbol of hope and reawakens hope in the DC universe. And in here, we see how that's so much pressure on him because he lost his whole family. Right. I mean, I mean, his wife and his kids. And then he comes back and, and Barry, he's back with Barry and stuff and everything and his mom. But he lost his, his immediate family and the PTSD, the trauma that does to him and everything, and then leading up to the anxiety and that lashing out and this, it's it's all so good. It's it's so realistic in this, this super unrealistic character. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I really like it. I think this issue for me definitely needed a second read, and I haven't done it yet. Um, but I love this series, and I can't wait to have a real nice version of it on my shelf because I think it's one of the most yeah. interesting things we've done with superheroes in a really long time. I would give this issue an eight right now, and I think, yeah. I think it might change on a reread, but also just once the whole thing's done, I think it's going to really need a reread, like much of Tom King stuff. Yeah. I, yeah. And I have no problem with doing this to Wally. I've heard some people be like, ah, what are they doing to Wally? This sucks. And I think, like, hell yeah. I th- I, yeah, I think it's good to do it with a character like Wally who's been around, you know, since the 60s mm-hmm. or something like that that's been such an important part of the DC universe, such an important part of Flash and all of this major stuff. He's going to turn into it? Monarch. <laughs> God, please no. <laughs> I'd give this one an eight and a half. Um, I, I, I respect any story that can make people mad, it, like mad that their fictional character isn't uh, is is being mistreated, and yeah. I think that that is that's a sign of good fiction. And if you're super upset that Wally killed a bunch of people, well, guess what? People that you like in real life do shitty things, and you then. If if that happens in your fiction and it it affects you emotionally, good fiction. Yeah, yeah. right there. I totally agree. Yeah, beautiful cover too. Yeah, jeez, I'll give it a ten. This will be my ten for the week. Nice. <laughs> I love that this sort of became more and more a Tom King, Mitch Garrett's book. Yeah, you know, like just halfway through when he started doing the art, and now he did this whole issue's art, like Almost. half of the issue before it, half of the issue before it. Yeah, sorry, Clay Man. Yeah, you're slow. <laughs> and gorgeous. Uh, but. The the only parts that he didn't do, I think, were just the panels. Yeah, of, no, I looked at the pages. While yeah. running, boy, I got to open a store, boys. Yeah, hey everybody, thanks for joining us in the Pap Cave for these last couple of months. And issue episode one twenty nine is going to be from our big old moving on up penthouse in the sky. Yeah. So I can't wait to talk to you all from up there. And I'm going to pack up some of this stuff, but I actually am going to leave a fair amount of it till tomorrow because my back is fucked up. Yeah, nice. Yeah, unless that stresses you out. No. Cool. No, I'm not doing anything in, down here till tomorrow. Cool. As long as you're not doing, you know that this is all me and all. You got to be out in vacuum by Tuesday. Cool. Well, I, yeah, I think tomorrow with my office day, I'm probably gonna do it because my back's fucked up. Nice. I'm Jeff, and that was a weird outro. I'm Django, <laughs> and God damn it, he's the fart. God damn it. He's a good cop. <laughs> I get it. I like it. Well done. Is that from the movie? No, it's from the old TV show. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, that's just Django. like a I'm chicken a gobble. Uh, turkey gobble. Wow. I can't follow. I'm Roman. I, I don't gobble. Thanks for being down here at 8 o'clock in the morning with me, boys. We wouldn't do it for anybody else, Jeff. We certainly would. <laughs>